Well, if you turn in your Bibles now and we continue our study of the subject of temptation and the fall in Genesis chapter 3, we'll be reading from verses 7 through 13. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 through 13. Last week we looked at this passage of the event of Adam and Eve eating the fruit from the tree in the garden plummeting mankind into sin and the pattern of temptation that Satan used which is informative for us serves as an illustration for us as to his approach so that we might live a victorious Christian life one that is not defeated but one that finds itself victory a victorious Christian life and so we look at the temptation and fall here in Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 It reads, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Our God in heaven, temptation, O Lord, assaults our soul. We pray, God, that we might open our heart to you and understand and know that we might live in victory over sin. That, Father, you would cause us to open our eyes that we might see and understand great things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a man that all of you probably know. His name is John Edwards. He ran for his party's presidential nomination back in 2004 and 2008, of which he didn't win either nomination, but he was John Kerry's running mate in 2004. But in 2008, as he was campaigning for the election, he, like many others, fallen into sin. And in 2008, he admitted publicly to an extramarital affair. And this past week, national news, evening news, reported that he had confessed to having fathered a child with a staffer of his back then. And that child is now two years old. His wife wrote a book called Resilience. Her name is Elizabeth, and she writes about how her husband's infidelity affected her. And she shared, even in an interview, how when they were first married, she had asked him pointedly, she asked him pointedly for him to be faithful. 
Her fear, you see, of having an unfaithful husband stemmed really from a large degree of seeing what her mother went through. Her mother suspected that her husband was unfaithful to her. And she never confronted him about it, but she lived with this nagging feeling, this painful uncertainty in her own heart for many years. And Elizabeth learned about her mother's struggle as a teenager when she was reading her mother's journal and her mother would write about the agony that she felt. And she saw how the suspicion of unfaithfulness had really tormented the the heart of her mother. And so she asked John if he would simply be faithful to her. She had a lot of confidence in her husband. She had a lot of confidence in his love for her. She had not been a suspicious wife. When she was diagnosed with breast cancer, she, she watched as her husband stood by her throughout her treatment. And in 2006, she would encourage him to travel. She would encourage him to travel without her when necessary in order to pursue his political ambitions. And that time, she didn't know that after beginning his campaign for the presidency, he had begun an ongoing adulterous relationship with another woman on his staff. Then on December 30th, 2006, almost a year after beginning that affair, he admitted to his wife of 28 years that he had been unfaithful. She writes in her book entitled Resilience, quote, After I cried and screamed, I went to the bathroom and threw up. The next day, John and I spoke. He wasn't coy, but it turned out he wasn't forthright either. So much has happened that it's sometimes hard for me to gather my feelings for that moment. I felt that the ground underneath me had pulled away. I wanted him to drop out of the race, protect our family from this woman, from his act. I was afraid of her. I spent months learning to live with what I thought was a single incidence of infidelity. I would like to say that a single incidence is easy to overcome, but it is not. I am who I am. I am imperfect in a million ways, but I always thought that I was the kind of woman, the kind of wife to whom a husband would be faithful. I had asked for fidelity, begged for it, really, when we were married. I never need flowers or jewelry. I don't care about vacations or a nice car. But I need you to be faithful. Leave me if you must, but be faithful to me if you are with me." That desire for faithfulness is also the desire of God. God's desire is that we be faithful to Him not leaving Him for what the world would have to offer, the enticement that it would have to offer, not wanting, not coveting, not worshipping, not bowing down, not falling in love with something else that the world would offer because it becomes spiritually crippling to you and it grieves the heart of God. And yet we are prone to sin, aren't we? We are prone to sin. Lord, how... My heart is prone to leave the God I love. So the hymnist writes, 
And if we're going to live a life that is faithful, if we're going to live a life that is victorious, if we're not going to live a life that continues to see defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat, swimming in the same hole that we've always been in, then we have to understand the process of temptation, the pattern that it takes us through, how we can have a victorious Christian life and understand that there are consequences to our sin. There are ramifications to our sin that will hurt you and me and everyone else that we infect with our sin. Last week we looked at Genesis 3 verses 1 through 6. And it illustrated for us the process that Satan uses. The process that Satan uses in his temptation to Eve is a process that he often uses. And he works, and on our own mind's eye, our flesh tempts us in the same way. When the desires of our heart question, first of all, the Word of God, what God has said. Has God truly said that? Well, it doesn't say that exactly in the Bible, but perhaps the spirit or the principle is there, and yet we get around it by justifying ourselves and what the Bible says. And we question the Word of God, and that's what Satan did. Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Secondly, he caused Eve to question God himself, the character of God. Does God really have your best interest in mind? Is God withholding something that is good from you? And to question not only the word of God, but the character of God. And then thirdly, to believe in a lie. To believe in a lie, he said, you will surely not die. Sin offers to you and I a lie. That lie is that something else, doing your own thing, walking your own way, choosing your own path, will make you happier, will make you more fulfilled than following the Word of God. That's the lie that sin holds out to you. That is the fruit that sin holds out to you. And we don't know what kind of fruit it was. We don't know what kind of fruit. Sometimes you look in children's magazines or little pictures of the temptation. It was a fruit that looks like an apple. And oftentimes people think it was an apple. And that comes because some people have taken the Latin word for apple, which is malum. And they've taken the word for evil, which is malus. And in the genitive form, they're the same word. Mali, M-A-L-I. And some people do a little linguistic hopscotching around. And they say, well, it's an apple. And they extend that whole idea about an apple and there's a little legend that goes along with that that Adam, when he ate the fruit off the tree, he ate the apple and he choked on it. And that's why you have an Adam's apple. That's where it comes from. Satan wants us to question God, question his word, believe in a lie. And when she looked, the Bible says, when she looked in verse 6, she saw that the tree was good for food is a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate she saw she desired she took and she spread her sin no one sins innocuously no one sins without affecting others a person may hide in their home and think well my own my sin only affects myself but it's not true Because your sin makes you ineffective at impacting other people for the glory of God. You cease to be useful to God. Your sin is a hindrance to others. And it affects other people as you share the sin in your life. 
And we're so stubborn like that ring-tailed monkey who sees the fruit and reaches his hand in there to scrape out all the seeds that he can and when he tries to retract his little fist it's too big for the hole and he becomes trapped and he refuses to let go of his sin. So today we look at the consequences of that sin because we face these same consequences when we sin against God. The first consequence that they experienced was they felt guilt and shame. Verse 7. They felt guilt and shame. The eyes of them both were opened. Verse 7. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin coverings. Their eyes were now open to sin. And remember, they knew good and evil. Evil experientially. But not as God knew evil. Just like a patient, as I mentioned last week, who knows what cancer is because they have cancer. And the surgeon who knows cancer in a very different way. Their eyes were opened to sin and yet their spiritual eyes had become blinded now by sin. Before the fall, they didn't have the temptation or they didn't have the shame that came with sin and they experienced sinful and moral thoughts. And their innocence was now violated. And so they sewed up fig leaves to cover themselves and they put on clothing, which is a good thing. It is a proper thing. Humanistic evolutionary anthropologists who want us to go back to the Garden of Eden in terms of clothing say have it all wrong. What Adam and Eve did here was right. It was proper. Because in verse 21 we see in chapter 3 the Lord God Himself made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. God Himself clothed them. God provided clothing for them because it is the proper thing to do. Just as we see Paul's instruction in the book of 1 Timothy. The book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 9. Paul gives an instruction there for women. And he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. In other words, there is improper clothing. There is immodest clothing that is wholly unacceptable. Prior to the fall, there was no need because they didn't experience sinful and moral thoughts. But now they do. And after the fall, they cover their shame. And never before had they made clothing. But now God Himself clothed them because of the guilt that comes when sin is rampant in our life. And they felt guilt. Today, people want to avoid guilt. They want to deny guilt. They want to alleviate their own guilt feelings. When you look in the library, you do a quick perusal of some of the titles of books that are written on the subject of guilt. You'll find a lot of them, such as Toss the Guilt and Catch the Joy or Getting Rid of Guilt or Don't Feed the Guilt Monster or Stop Pleading Guilty. One headline of an advice columnist was quoted in the book Vanishing Conscience was entitled in that advice column, It's Not Your Fault. Quote, a woman had written to say she had tried every form of therapy she knew but could not break a self-destructive habit. The columnist responded, quote, The first step you must take is to stop blaming yourself. Your compulsive behavior is not your fault. Refuse to accept blame. Above all, do not blame yourself for what you cannot control. Heaping guilt on yourself only adds to your stress. Low self-esteem, worry, depression, 
Feelings of inadequacy and dependence on others. Let go of your guilt feelings. In the same book, Ann Landers, in the Ann Landers Encyclopedia, writes, quote, One of the most painful, self-mutilating, time and energy consuming exercises in the human experience is guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish or rotten. Never mind that it was a result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh or clay feet. You did wrong and it's killing you. Too bad. But be assured, the agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant and we don't need any more of it in the world, unquote. In other words, don't let yourself be hindered by the pollutant of guilt that stems from sins such as selfishness, dishonesty, laziness, or doing something wrong. We don't need any more of that. It's the message. Well, that's not what the scriptures say. The world misses the point. You see, because true guilt, guilt that comes because we have sinned against God, should drive us to repentance, to contrition to restitution and making things right, to desiring forgiveness, and we will be free from guilt. Now, I'm not speaking of guilt because we've placed expectations upon ourselves that we can't meet, or the expectations of others when others may put a guilt trip on us. But I'm speaking of the things that we do that are wrong against God. When we break our fellowship with God, when we experience that shame or that estrangement from God, because the results are a lack of joy and a lack of motivation, a lack of desire and a whole host of problems that come. When we do not deal with our guilt as the scriptures call us to deal with our guilt. And that is to come to God who offers Love and forgiveness because of the atonement of Christ. When we can be free from living underneath guilt because God receives us in His grace. So they experience fear and guilt. But they secondly experienced, or what they did was hide from God. They experienced shame and guilt. Secondly, they hid from God. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now here they were in the cool of the day, which is near the end of the day. So perhaps there's some time that is implied there. Since the time they had sinned against God, since the time they had sown some fig leaves together, God was walking in the garden. Now, in the Old Testament, God sometimes appears as a, in the form of a man, in the form of a person. And He would appear in the Old Testament at various times. In Genesis 17 and 18, He appears to Abraham. In Genesis 32, He wrestles with Jacob. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees on the throne of God, high and lifted up, He sees Christ. And when God appears in the form of a person... Theologically, we call that a theophany. In the Old Testament, when Christ appears as a person, we call them Christophanies. So it's not unusual here that God is walking in the garden. And He said to the man, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. 
God, just like children. When children do something wrong and they know it's wrong, they hide because they feel guilt, because there is fear there. Like when I was a little boy, I remember opening the refrigerator and turning that chiller number all the way down to zero. And then I closed the refrigerator door and I went and hid underneath this table where I kept all the comic books. And I would sit there and read all the comic books until my mother confronted me and she looked down underneath that table, asked me if I had turned the refrigerator temperature all the way down to zero. You see, when someone knows they've done something wrong, they go and hide. They hide themselves like a criminal and people do the same thing. Adults do the same thing in different ways. Different forms. Sometimes they hide and they accuse Christians to make an excuse. They accuse Christians of not being accepting because they don't want to worship God. They don't want God to confront them. They don't want to hear from God. They don't want to go to church or they'll deny the existence of God. Or they don't want to study the Word of God. Why? Because we love our sin as humans who are fallen. People love their sin. It's just been said, there's a saying that says about the Word of God, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. This book, you see, brings us into the presence of God, so we can see God, and God speaks to us through His Word. And He speaks to the issues of the heart that confront us, and we feel guilt, and we can run to God for forgiveness. So Adam and Eve, they felt shame and guilt. And then they hid from God. And thirdly, there was fear and lying. The Lord God said to the man, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. Now God asked Adam, where are you? You might ask yourself, now why in the world does God ask Adam where he was? Doesn't God know where Adam is? Doesn't he know that Adam is hiding behind the bushes? Well, the question wasn't asked that God said here because God didn't know where Adam was. In fact, when you look at it and you look at the word called, when the Lord God called Adam, that word is used in the Old Testament of someone who is calling another to give an account. He is calling another to give an account. And this is a display of the grace and the mercy of God. See, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God could very well have, if He had so chosen to, sent a lightning bolt from heaven to incinerate both of them. Start all over. He would have been justified. He could have rendered immediate judgment right then, right there, right now. But God in His grace instead called Adam to give an account. You parents probably have done the same thing. Maybe you know your son or your daughter has done something. Maybe they have uh, gotten a ticket when they were driving. Or maybe they got in trouble at school. And so you want them to fess up. You want them to confess what they have done. So you call them and you say, how was your day at school? Good. Anything unusual happened today? Not really. Well, what happened today? How is the car running? Good, etc. You want them to come and confess. And in the same way, God calls to Adam and he says, Where are you? 
And the same idea is when Genesis chapter 4 verse 9, when Cain killed Abel, God called to Cain and he said, where is Abel, your brother? God in his grace and mercy is calling them to account. Even though in verse 10 of chapter 4, God called and said to Abe, Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What did Adam do? Not only was Adam afraid, but he lied. He said, you know, I, 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 was, uh, I, I was naked and so I hid. The problem wasn't Adam's nakedness. He was naked yesterday, but he wasn't afraid. He was naked when he was created. He wasn't afraid. The problem was that he experienced sin. And he had sinned against God and he lied to God. But God in his mercy dialogued with Adam in order that he might give an account to explain himself. But like many people, he gave a deceptive reason. And that's what people do. When they sin against someone else, when they've done something wrong, they give a deceptive reason, they give an alternative reason. You ask them a question, you'll find sometimes they're evasive. Sometimes they'll answer a different question. Sometimes they'll try and distract the questioner so that they divert from what they're asking. All because there is guilt. All because there is fear. All because they do not want to be straightforward. And so God asks them a second question. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you to eat? Once again, Adam could have said, Yes, I've sinned. I've done wrong. I've disobeyed. I've eaten from the tree. But his response, once again, is an illustration of what people commonly do when they've done wrong. Not only is there hiding from God, not only is there fear and lying, but there is blaming others. Blaming others. The man said in verse 12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. When something happens, when something happens to us, we often blame others. We often blame others. We minimize our wrongdoings and we maximize others' sins. In Adam's response, the first person that Adam blames is actually not Eve. The first person Adam blames is God. The woman whom you gave to be with me. You can imagine what Adam might have been thinking. I didn't make her. I didn't even know what a woman was until she came along. I didn't ask for her. In fact, you're the one who said, it's not good for man to be alone. I went to bed one night. I was single and a bachelor. I woke up married. God, it wasn't my fault. In fact, maybe it'd be better to trade back. You have refunds. I want my rib back. You can have the woman back. God, maybe you could give me a wife next time that would be a little bit more discerning. You know, a little more street smart. You know, not so easily deceived. What do you think, God? Whatever he was thinking, he blamed God. And that's what happens when people feel that maybe God owes them something. They blame God. God owes me a good life. God owes me a good job. God owes me good health. God owes me all of these things. Even if I'm not faithful, God, you owe me these things. And if you don't give them to me, well, it's not my fault, it's yours. Their concept of God, though, is the concept of God in their own mind. Because they forget sometimes God is a God who will discipline us, who will bring calamity for our good and for His glory. A God who can be angry. A God who loves us and yet, like a father, disciplines us. 
And so when we see things that happen, when we see things happen, we trust in God's sovereign plan for our lives. But Adam not only blames God, but he blames Eve. When God asks Eve, what does she say? Well, she says, uh, she says the same thing, in effect. She says, look, the serpent, the serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 13. We blame mothers often, don't we? We blame the government. We blame our job. We blame the judgment of others. We blame our husband. We blame our wife. We blame the school. We blame the teachers. We blame the material. We blame our, 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 our social structure. We blame the fact that where we live is not so good or whatever it might be. Whatever it is, we take little responsibility, if any. And when something negative happens, we're so very prone to blaming someone else or other things and not taking personal responsibility for what we've done. That is often the case. Some of you know, I, I have this junky pickup truck. This junky pickup truck I, I bought for a few hundred dollars. I used it to haul around things. It's not very attractive. In fact, when I took it to the emissions station, the guy there said, Well, what do you use this truck for? Hauling junk? Every home needs a junk truck. It failed emissions three times before that, I learned. But God was gracious. It passed. And I was so embarrassed about how it looked, I'd apologize to my neighbor and decided to paint it. So I bought some spray paint and painted it. It looks a lot better. I was driving, though, a few weeks ago, and I stopped at a stop sign in this truck. I stopped at a stop sign, and boom, I was rear-ended. Now, this is the third time someone's hit my car this past year. Each and every time, my car is just sitting there, minding its own business, and pow, somebody hits me. So I pull over to the side of the road, and this lady climbs out of her Honda Odyssey, by which she's rear-ended me. And the first thing she says is, Well, I don't think I did that, because your truck was already dented in. In fact, my bumper is so low, it couldn't possibly have done that. And I was flabbergasted. Of all the places on my truck, the back tailgate looks the best. I mean, it is straight, it is nicely painted, it isn't spray painted at all, and it looks very attractive. And I was just, what are you saying? And sure, she continues on until she turns around and looks at her own Honda Odyssey, of which the hood was now tinted. Up And she said, oh, I am so sorry. When something terrible happens, we often don't want to take responsibility, do we? We want to shift the blame off of us so that we look better, so that we will be innocent. We don't want to be responsible. We want to get out of our problems. That's very evident in personal relationships, whether it's Parents and children who have a conflict or husbands and wives or co-workers who work together or whatever it is. When something negative happens in interpersonal conflict, rarely, rarely is anyone completely innocent. There are always two sides to the story. There are always two perspectives and that's instructive for you and for me when you're trying to mediate between two of your children or whatever. We desire to be sympathetic and understanding, but always understand that there are always two sides to every story. And the question I always ask myself when someone comes to me is, how much personal responsibility does someone take for whatever situation they're in? 
How much do they take of their own responsibility? Do they say, well, I've done a few things wrong, but, 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 but. And they continue on about all of the faults and failures of someone else. I ask myself, how much personal responsibility do they take? Or how do they cast themselves in the light of what is true? Are they truly open to whatever it might be that would contribute to a particular situation? Are they asking you because they want a sympathetic ear? The situations, I understand, where there are some that are completely not at fault, but that's rare. Because we as people are so prone to cast ourselves in a better light. We as people are so prone to blame others just like Adam did and just like Eve did. And you see the problem, the problem that comes about is when we don't take personal responsibility, there is no need for us to seek God and ask God for forgiveness or ask others for forgiveness. And where there is no confession, where there is no repentance, there is guilt that weighs down on our soul. And no forgiveness is given. And we walk away casting ourselves as the victim. It's not my fault. I'm the victim here. And we all, our tendency is to respond in that way. But if we're to be right with God, there must be personal responsibility. And we look at ourselves first. So Adam, he blamed God. Eve blamed the serpent. Just as a word of encouragement here for those of you who are married, here was God. He made two people perfect, perfect in purity, perfect in holiness, sinless. But sin entered into their relationship. And because of sin, there was and always will be problems. In the life of Adam and Eve, God was the matchmaker. But even for them, there were problems. There were disappointments. There was suffering. Even as they watched one of their own sons murder the other. No marriage, no family is perfect. No marriage and no family is exempt from problems or suffering or difficulties. Why? Because we are sinful people. So don't look and say, boy, they have a perfect family. They have a perfect marriage because no marriage is without Problems when there is sin. So there are a number of consequences that sin has brought about. Sin has brought about, as illustrated by Adam and Eve here, shame and guilt. Sin has brought about hiding from God, fear and lying, and blaming others for our sins. There's a lot to be said these days. There's a lot to be said and a lot being touted these days about what is green. The carbon footprint we leave behind. And they talk about hairsprays to furnaces to cars and the garbage that we all throw out. Everyone leaves a carbon footprint and you can go and calculate the amount of carbon that you leave behind. But in the same way, in the same aspect, a sinful life leaves behind the same pollutants. Negativity impacts others when our sin flows from our own life because no one sins in secret. God always knows and that sin always spreads. But that same life, that same life that leaves behind calamity, leaves behind hurt feelings through words that are spoken, leaves behind destruction can also leave footprints 
behind that are good and edifying, that build others up, that change the world, turning it upside down, moving others as they follow in your footprints, as they follow you, as you follow God. And others can follow in the same way. When we understand, you see, that sin brings about consequences far beyond you and I in our private sin. Consequences that are serious, that draw others and affect others just as our life can affect for good. Sin can affect for calamity. By the grace of God, we pray that the footprints we leave will lead others to righteousness rather than to sin along with us. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, it seems these days on the news they publicize the sins of others. We pray, God, as we hear that we might be warned. As your word says, pride cometh before a fall. We pray, God, that we might humble ourselves, knowing the frailty of our own heart, that we might follow, O God, in your footsteps, that we might live a victorious life for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name.